Welcome back to Beyond the Talk, a podcast formed in conjunction with the independently organized event, TEDxUF. Determined to dive deeper into the talks you know and love, I'm Apeksha. And I'm Zoe, and today we're here with a very special guest. Care to introduce yourself? Sure thing. Hello, (laughs) everyone. My name is Devon Mims. I'm currently a first year at the University of Florida College of Medicine. I am pursuing a joint doctorate of veterinary medicine as well as a master of public health. Uh, I'm not sure what else you want to know. That's I'm sure that's why I'm here. Yes. <laughs> Probably. That'd be a really short you freaking podcast. Code. You cracked the code. Yes. So I know Devon from previous experiences and thought he was just a great person to have on the podcast. So here he is sitting in this chair that has held so many cool people. Anyway, alongside his joint program he also serves as a class officer specifically vice president for the vet med class of 2022 and ultimately according to his linkedin (laughs) his goal is to serve as a culturally competent clinician um, combining his passion for animal medicine to that of disability service which is dope so cool so this deep diving research Mm -hmm. linkedin (laughs) (laughs) anyway So, first and foremost, we should talk about how you got to UF, um, where you attended undergrad. Mm -hmm. And your journey is especially important to talk about because you are a first-generation student. So, how did you guide yourself through that journey of higher education? Yeah, uh, with plenty of difficulty. (laughs) Let's say that. So, like Zoe mentioned, I completed my undergraduate studies here at the University of Florida. I did an bachelor of and bachelor of science, yep, uh, a bachelor of science in zoology, um, as well as a minor in disabilities in society. Um, graduating four years, did the whole honors shebang. Um, but of course, being a first generation student um, and just generally a hodgepodge of labels, navigating the world of higher education is, as I said, difficult. (laughs) The most basic questions that students have regarding things like financial aid, registering for classes, what is a Bachelor of Science versus a Bachelor of Art versus a PhD versus a DVM, an MD, ODDO, all of the abbreviations. (laughs) Jesus. I'm already Um, confused. Right, right. And so imagine that experience for an incoming college student who has no foundation for that knowledge whatsoever. It's overwhelming um, and all-consuming. And when you go back home or you want to call mom and ask for help, mom is completely unable to do so. Mm -hmm. And that's not due to a lack of intelligence or a lack of drive on my parents' part. It's a simple lack of access. Her lack of experience with higher education meant that she could not advise me in regards to most anything that was higher education related. So looking forward for advice, um, for guidance and the right steps to take, especially during those first two years of my undergraduate career was daunting and difficult. Understandable. (laughs) Very understandable. Um, Did you have, you know, being a first generation student, did Mm -hmm. that have any effect on your perception of involvement culture as a whole? Was there almost an expectation for you to, you know, step up in some way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that that expectation persists throughout undergraduate career, not just at the beginning, and especially when you get into professional school. I mean, uh, I am in a cohort of 120 students wherein there are three students who have identified as African-American. And so off the bat, I feel an almost responsibility to be that that voice and representation for such a diverse and heterogeneous group of people. It's an unrealistic expectation for people to have in yeah. the first place. Um, and when you are seeking those involvement opportunities, I think you immediately drift towards, well, I should join the Diversity Alliance and I should immediately devote all of my time to this thing. And yes, I would love to do that. But it also puts, again, an unrealistic expectation for students from already marginalized populations to have a greater sense of responsibility that is completely separate than their own personal well-being, than their academic well-being, um, and their socio-academic well-being as well. So it's, it's difficult I keep saying the word difficult. <laughs> well, I mean, it is. <laughs> I think that best I'll, describes I'll, it. How was I'll your experience? Source-wise. Uh, in undergrad, seeking involvement? Yeah. 
So nicely enough, one of the first things that I had the opportunity to get involved in as an undergraduate student before I even came to the university, I received an email through the honors program that I was involved in um, regarding what was called the Honors First Generation Program. Um, And so H1G, as it is colloquially abbreviated, um, is a program that paired first-generation students with first-generation mentors within the honors program who were uh, higher years. Um, And so I had the opportunity to work with a second-year honors student who had already been through the process of (laughs) the difficult navigation of the higher education system, learning how to do things like your financial aid requests, signing up for classes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that automatically was a sense of relief in terms of, okay, I have someone to ask, have someone to present these questions to. And even if I don't know the right person to ask, well, they might. (laughs) (laughs) And that'll give me those first few steps. Are there any sorts of organizations geared towards first generation students when you get into the professional sphere? So graduate school, professional schools, anything like that? Yeah. So... Obviously, each of the professional schools is going to be set up a bit differently. At the vet school, we have the Diversity and Inclusion Veterinary Alliance, which is a very broad spectrum organization for people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds. Um, So it really is going to depend on the profession itself. Veterinary medicine has been deemed the whitest profession in America. Um, Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, fun fun facts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So... um, it is easy enough and, uh, I guess, necessary in a certain sense to throw all of the diverse people <laughs> into one sort of uh, cluster um, wherein we can discuss very broad-hitting diversity issues just as a result of there being a very low proportion of diverse individuals in the profession in the first place. Um but that, you know, we, veterinary medicine has its kind of perks as well. We're <laughs> kind more, of <laughs> we're a much more female dominated profession, which I am all about. At the same time, you look at who are the heads of uh, administrations and chiefs of service. And it tends to be older individuals of uh, more fair <laughs> skin complexion. And men. I don't know if I said men. They're usually men, mm-hmm, um, yeah. which is interesting because our field is so female dominated. So even in the spheres where you can see some sort of diverse representation, you look a little bit further and the diverse representation does not necessarily perforate, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. And uh, I mean, kind of going back to like what you were bringing up about being a first generation student, mm-hmm. I almost relate to that in a way because um, I'm not first generation, but my parents are immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I'm an immigrant, so coming into this country, like my parents did didn't know anything about the college application process right. or just like the idea of like how how important it is to be involved in high school along with your GPA, along with your mm-hmm. SAT, ACT scores, along with everything else, like having internships and having research and like that just wasn't a part of like how they expected college to mm-hmm. be. And then the idea of like financial aid and just like Everything about college was so new to them that I almost felt like I was a completely brand new person going into college. So you bringing up all this like stuff about how daunting it is to go into college and have to be kind of the person in your family to be in charge of everything. I 100% like resonate with that because that was the same thing. Like I had to learn what my bright futures could do. I had to understand how financial aid works, how FAFSA works, like what to, like I learned a lot about taxes because (laughs) of FAFSA. So I completely get what you mean with like being in college and like being the first person in your family to go through even the American college system is is a lot. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you bring that up. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's, it is important to Mm -hmm. recognize that although privilege just as the term itself has become a very strong buzzword mm, yeah. or trigger word depending <laughs> on your own personal philosophies. Um, although it has become that, it at the same time becomes a sort of mimetic, it's meme-like, um, <laughs> often due to a lack of understanding of the term. Because really, when we talk about privilege, what we're talking about is our implicit biases, right? And it's all about right. circumstances. So instead of thinking about privilege as something that you personally have bestowed mm-hmm. upon yourself or, <laughs> and or others, um, the better question is is about what kind of capital are you inheriting 
gener generationally, um, and what sort of nonlinear interactions exist amongst the different circumstances that you personally have inherited, whether it is being a first-generation student, whether it is being a child of immigrants, um, whether it is having a physical or mental disability. It, there's so many different strings that play into the puppeteering of life. Mm -hmm. uh, Good that Lord. I mean, that <laughs> was he came up with it on the spot and I you did. saw his brain just like, yes. <laughs> I feel like this is spoken word. Like, I, I love we this snaps. We need snaps. <laughs> do you do spoken word no, <laughs> uh, no yes are you I sure? speak and words fall out of my mouth <laughs> oh my um, god so when we're talking about privilege i think it's better to ask the questions of what enabling and restrictive factors have contributed to or are preventing mm -hmm. is certain individual's progress so it's about what inherent biases do we need to confront both personally and socially before calling any playing field, whether it be an academic playing field, an employment-based playing field, an economically-based playing field, whether calling any of them equal or more mm -hmm. appropriately equitable, of course. It's about confronting biases, doing so bravely and effectively. <laughs> How have you been confronting biases? Oh. Like your own <laughs> Come on, right back, right back at questions. you. <laughs> All right, no. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind, I think I had a very, very uh, privileged opportunity uh, throughout my undergraduate experience being in the honors program in general, because that is obviously a group of the very selective students, and it yeah. is among our own campus, uh, in a, <laughs> I want to say elite, at the same time sort of elitist um, group of, of students. Yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> often, and when you look at those students, you know, we think about who has the access to get into those programs, but, and whatevs. I happen to be able to be a part of that group of folks, um, which and being as a, a member of the representatives for that group, the um, honors ambassadors that existed while I was in the my undergraduate career, um, that put me in a very close sphere with administrators, with individuals who had more power than I did, especially, again, as a student from so many marginalized populations, to affect some kind of change. Um, and I was fortunate enough to gather some ears of individuals that were willing to listen and engage in some conversations and activities regarding diversity. One of the things that I first think about um, is within the honors program with one of the honors advisors and one of the associate directors, we had the opportunity to do a little bit of research, a little bit of uh, empirical investigation regarding the perspectives of marginalized populations within honors programs in general, um, American honors programs uh, especially. Um, and I had the opportunity to present these uh, perspectives at a national conference. I had the opportunity to sit down with our own um, Associate Director of Student Affairs and discuss the perspectives here on our campus. Um, I've been sitting in on uh, diversity and affairs task forces for the overall undergraduate population. We're looking into getting involved in things like that at the College of Veterinary Medicine. So just getting those conversations started in the first place is a bit of a pride point for me. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it's about reaching back into my own personal experiences and I think connecting lines between personal and empirical because mm. they are there. Um, there are tons of research articles out there regarding the experiences of students from marginalized populations yeah. and people just don't really know about them. And it was really interesting doing some of this research and digging into what published perspectives exist in the scientific literature and drawing connections between my own personal experiences that I've had and the actual empirically suggested experiences of populations of people like myself. So we look at basic sociological theory and there exists the idea that social capital is sort of transmitted and inherited from generation to generation to generation. So when your parents and your grandparents and your great parents have had the opportunity to engage in higher education and have had the opportunity to take steps up that socioeconomic ladder, that benefits you as an individual Again, from generation to generation to generation, you start with a backpack of wealth that helps <laughs> you along a little bit when you're when you're first kicked out of the nest. Um, and yeah. some people's backpacks are a little more empty than others. Um, and those differences are really, really evident 
when students first enter higher education, which I think is amazing. It's sad, unfortunate, and a devastating realization, but it's an amazing difference that we can take two students, one who is a first-generation student and one who has students from a traditionally educated background, set them through their K-12 through education, and they can have the same exact levels of achievements, same test scores, etc. And then as soon as they step foot onto a college campus, the first-generation student starts to lag behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think about, well, what's the difference? We, we know what the difference is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and those, those changes are, again, most evident throughout those first two years that a student is on a college campus. So we can literally pinpoint where differences in social capital are hurting students. The question then is, of course, what kind of programs are we putting in place to appropriately acclimate and empower those students so that those setbacks are not as devastating? Yeah. Um, <laughs> are there certain programs that you think we should implement in regards to first-generation students that you want to see on campus here? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, things like the Honors First Generation program, I think, are definitely right steps towards doing that. It's about making sure that students have access, making sure that students have equitably, and making sure that students feel comfortable reaching out to individuals who have advice <laughs> that will tear down those restrictive factors. Um, And unfortunately, in our campus, that's only a program that's really associated with the honors program. We have programs that are amazing, like the Matching Florida Opportunity Scholars Program um, that assists students from diverse backgrounds, especially from low socioeconomic statuses. But not every student is enrolled in that program. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's harder to say that there is a Mm -hmm. campus-wide kind of diversity initiative that is really reaching out to students and pairing them with those sort of mentor figures. And... I can understand it. It's, it might be difficult for a campus-wide initiative to uh, difficult is, you know. It subjective. could be better <laughs> quite yeah, easily, yeah. Let actually. Me, let me take that one back. Um, <laughs> We're going to retract that statement. <laughs> right, right. Redact it. Uh, Perfect, um, hard, better. Uh. <laughs> there we go. Um, but that isn't to say that we can't identify other places that are much more easily feasible for universities to take a stand that is going to assist students. Another sort of empirical uh, base that I think about in regards to students from uh, diverse backgrounds is there was a study, I think it was by Torres et al., and I don't forget the year, but I'm sure that not many of these exist, so you can Google it and find (laughs) it. Um, But there was a study um, that essentially showed that students from Latinx backgrounds uh, felt a disconnect between them and their advisors. Mm -hmm. That these students waited until what this paper deemed a point of academic dissonance, of of complete like disaster, like I am in destruction mode, I need help, (laughs) or else I'm going to not be able to be at this university. They waited until that point before actually seeking guidance from an advisor. Mm -hmm. And when asked about the reason that students do that, it's because they were worried that there would be judgment. And again, that's a sociocultural factor in terms of seeing mental illness and the need of help, Mm -hmm. especially from an authority figure, quote unquote, um, as weak. So there was this worry of, of being judged by advisors or other authoritative figures at universities. Um, there was this feeling of shame at needing the assistance in the first place. Mm. At the same time, there was a stronger trust of the information, a stronger feeling that information was reliable if it came from peers as opposed to authority figures. Mm. So instead of trusting what Sharon at the Academic Advising Center has to say, I'm much more prone to trust Apeksha's words of wisdom because she has been there. Mm. We come from the same shared lived experience And I feel comfortable approaching her. Right. So if these students in points of academic distress exist, but they're not coming to our academic advising centers, do they exist to a university? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the question. They're not reported, right? They're not coming. And at a certain point, they're not on the books as being in academic distress in the first place until the point they disappear and we lose them from the higher education system, Mm -hmm. 
so at a point, at a point, universities say, "Well, what what are we supposed to do?" <laughs> they didn't come to us. Mm-hmm. They did yeah. not seek our help. So how can we help them? And <laughs> <laughs> and there are ways. <laughs> um, and so some of the things that, that people that these uh, writers suggest are things like, uh, I mean, we've seen um, a higher attempt on our campus, even in things. Uh, there's an initiative that I recently saw shared um, regarding the. Uh, formation of sort of advising groups, peer groups for African-American males on our campus. the CWC. Yes. So things like that are great. Mm. Enabling peer-to-peer connection with a reliable, trustworthy figure is absolutely one way of engaging that peer-to-peer trust, but involving the academic institution and allowing them to have proof and evidence of the existence of this crisis mm-hmm. um, but again not kind of infringing upon the rights and the sociocultural norms that the student has built from yeah. youth to this point yeah mm-hmm. no I agree I mm-hmm. think it's important to have like a trust between your peers of some kind because I know yeah. for me like if I'm going to advising I would rather go to someone who's like who's going through the same experiences as me mm-hmm. you know yeah and on that same note but a slightly different one. Um, <laughs> when we speak about diversity and inclusion in that way, I think it's also important to recognize the need for representation in organizations amongst peer groups, so amongst student organizations on campus. And having been a leader in multiple student organizations, specifically ones that reach out to prospective students and their families to show what this campus has to offer, um, what moves can these sorts of organizations make to be more accommodating to traditionally marginalized groups of people yeah i mean i think it just starts with being thoughtful Mm -hmm. like putting forth the honest effort in sitting down and saying what what are we doing and who are we reaching Mm -hmm. is our program accessible is a program offered only select days of the week that are very very likely to be times when certain families cannot take off from work and thus are we barring individuals from a lower socioeconomic status from participating in these programs and receiving information about our university and the admission practices here. Are we available online? Are we only available online? And thus are individuals who do not have electronic access going to be barred from receiving this information? Um, Are we being accessible in terms of disability? Do we have a screen reader friendly format uh, for our electronic Um, information outlets? Is our information accessible to individuals who are deaf, who are blind, who are deaf and blind, Mm -hmm. who are any (laughs) spectrum (laughs) of of, uh, sensory um, hampered? Uh, So those are the first questions, I think. You have to put in an honest effort and ask the questions that are not difficult, (laughs) Mm. but are are maybe a, a bit are a step further than the normal planning. Yeah, I yeah. can set up, I can, you know, subscribe to Wix.com. There are advertisements <laughs> all over the internet. I can build a Wix website in five minutes <laughs> and put the information out there and be done. Finished. <laughs> <laughs> but who is seeing that information? Yeah. Who is able to see that information? Um, I think that is absolutely step one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then step two, I think, is about confronting the programs where uh, we are actually reaching out. So the question is, I guess, what is our who is under our lamppost? Mm -hmm. You know, if we have this spotlight of the population that we are actively sifting through in order to build the next group of 13,000 or whatever the fancy new number was for um, the incoming class. Um, 7 something? Yeah, I don't know. It was a, anyway. it was a big old It number. was big, and they were all smarter than me. So, so much smarter. The average GPA was insane. 4. Right, 4. right. So, you know, where are we, where are we getting these students from? Mm-hmm. Where are we sending the, the advisors who actually go out to communities and, and host the workshops and um, application workshops uh, at high schools, you know, which high schools are we choosing to yeah. get these special presentations? Mm-hmm. Are we only attending the schools who have been A-ranked for the past 15 years and completely avoiding the C-ranked school that's in the largely disparaged community that has high rates of domestic abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Are we avoiding that school 
because they don't have the same access that a school has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. so, uh, and I think a long time again when we have these large historically founded academic institutions that have their lamp posts already set up, it's again easy to say, "Well, we've been doing this. We've been sending our advisors to this county, and we no longer we've got the population of students that apply every single year. You know, we we can't admit more students of color because we don't find them. Mm-hmm. They don't exist." They don't exist in the lamppost that we've set up. So how do we expand the the reach that we are doing um, and making sure that light is shed on the students that have been historically kept in the dark by oppressive forces? Mm-hmm. T. That's a great question. <laughs> <Sip>. I... <laughs> yeah, um, I don't have an answer for you. Oh, oh, I don't <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> None don't... of us have answers. Okay, okay, anyway, moving on. So, <laughs> uh, so segueing a little bit. So you, <laughs> um, in addition to everything else you did in undergrad, because there's a lot and it's a little bit ridiculous, um, you also served as president of the Signing Gators, which is a club at UF dedicated to educating the population about deaf culture as well as ASL. Um, and you are also a lead TA for the mm-hmm. UF ASL and Deaf Studies program, correct? Yes. Those are yes. things that I did. <laughs> you did those, and then you coupled them with research, which is really cool. Absolutely. Um, and your love for animals. So tell us a little bit about the honors thesis that you did. Absolutely, yeah. For a long time, you know, I just really, uh, uh, I was sort of enamored by the idea that um, you could indulge yourself in a culture without buying a, bl- a plane ticket and flying to a whole new country, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. deaf people exist everywhere in our backyards. There's a Gainesville deaf community, there's a Tampa deaf community, there's an Orlando deaf community, mm-hmm. and they exist, and their cultures are rich. Um, and so just embracing that culture is an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky enough to be involved in the Tampa deaf community since being in, in high school. So of course, coming to Gainesville, I wanted to continue that involvement. Um, wonderful opportunities, volunteering with literacy centers and children, um, dress up times, Halloween story. Love that reading. for you. Yes, there are pictures yep. online that are Perfect. so what? cute. Uh, uh, I'll show you. Okay. <laughs> I'll show you. Um, um, so, of course, when I got to UF, I intended to continue uh, my involvement with the deaf community, especially UF does not actually have a minor or major program devoted to deaf studies specifically, um, which is why I enrolled in the program for disabilities, mm-hmm. uh, just a more broad spectrum program. And immediately I fell in love with the idea of of not in love with, I should say, but I was enamored with the idea of how health disparities um, are influenced by human conditions, right? So health and human wellness is influenced by the conditions of health disparities, and that goes back and influences the wellness of our animals. So my like main picture, um, the easiest thing for, for folks to wrap their minds around usually is you think of a person with disability who makes use of her service animal, and then you have to think about the communications that are ongoing between them and their uh, service providers. So you think about their human clinicians that they work with on a mm-hmm. regular basis, and you think about the veterinarians and the trainers um, who go into their <clears throat> collaboration regarding their service animals. And if communication is not concordant, then outcomes are going to be harmed for both that human and that animal, and that is a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we really have to think about how we are communicating with our patients, um, communicating with For me, my patient is an animal, obviously, Mm. so less so communicating (laughs) with my patients and more so communicating with my client regarding, (laughs) exactly, regarding their their patient's health. Um, But in general, as clinicians, human or animal clinicians, about how we work with the diverse communities in order to not just relay information, but to make sure that our uh, clients are able to engage Mm. in the health information that they are receiving in whatever way is most accessible and most effective for them. 
what that resulted in in terms of my <laughs> research at the University of Florida. Uh, my fun little tagline that I like to throw out is that I had the opportunity to teach sign language to dogs. <laughs> um, what? Not, not exactly true. So what? Um, <laughs> you can't come at me with that clip <laughs> and then tell me that it's not real. It's, it's, you know, it's a stretch is what it is. Um, and I say that because I have obviously a vast appreciation for American Sign Language as a language and culture of its own. <laughs> What I was able to do with dogs is essentially study the effectiveness of training animals via either verbal or gestural commands. So what we did is we had groups of dogs and we would train them. Um, and I'm going to do some physical hand motions here that our, uh, our audience is we, not going to be able to appreciate. We can like verbally explain what you're doing. Okay. Okay. So I can I also can... take videos and then just like. No. That's anyway. weird. I don't yeah. That's that. weird. Don't do that. <laughs> no. no, no. Okay. I'll just narrate. Okay. All right. Okay. So I can say sit. And his, both his hands are on his chin. <laughs> But the tips of his fingers. You would assume your dog would sit, Mm -hmm. but I can also gesture. Hand is brought up from waist (laughs) to side of face. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I can. This description is. I'm doing well. Continue. (laughs) Okay. Yes. I can say sit, or I can Mm -hmm. gesture sit. Mm -hmm. I can say down, or I can gesture down. I can say, roll over, or I can gesture. Oh, it's a little finger like wagging. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And the idea is simply that individuals, uh, especially individuals who are deaf or deaf blind, who make use of service animals, Mm -hmm. are going to be much more apt to communicate via gesture with their animals uh, rather than using verbal commands. And so if we can incorporate training that is gesture based into the preparation of those service animals, it's going to make the process so much easier easier when that service animal is in the hands of the person who needs it. And I'll say this all kind of started because we have a really, really good deaf-blind friend whose dog knows so many gestural commands. <laughs> really? It's amazing. What's the most uh, unique one? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Fetch me a slipper. <laughs> I, I, he can. Wait, <laughs> he can. for real? Yes, absolutely. That's cool. so, so this dog is, is trained to to do so many things and a lot of the training which is great but also sort of part of the problem came from the deafblind mm-hmm. handler themselves mm-hmm. so the, the handler is an amazing um handler of this dog does amazing in terms of caretaking and training but the handler themselves shouldn't necessarily be responsible for the bulk of training of their own service animal you know that's yeah. what we would hope mm-hmm. um so we did the study um and it was a follow-up to another study that was done where they trained, they took some water-trained rescue dogs who were already trained with uh, both words and gestures because you can't hear very well under the water. <laughs> um, and they took them and they would gesture to them to lay down and they would verbalize to the dog to sit. And much more reliably, the dogs actually followed the gestural commands when the hmm. two were discordant. And so that hmm. kind of probed the question of, well... Maybe gestures are even better than words in the first place. Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, especially when you think of dogs who are kind of genetically and historically predisposed to being very, very acutely aware to narrow changes in their environment. Mm-hmm. A wolf lays still and notes the slight movements of the deer in the brush, etc. Stop. <laughs> creepy. I know, that, that was a little. little... <laughs> No, but you did it so accurately. It's like he's narrating a children's book. Anyway, continue. Put me on the animal planet. I'm ready. God, is this your audition tape? This might be. I'll send it in. Um, The worst. And I will be barred (laughs) forever. Just Uh, brings up like first generation disparities within like an animal planet. The wolf and the deer and the underbrush. It's all a metaphor. It's all a metaphor. Exactly. (laughs) Who's the wolf? Who's the deer? I'll let you decide. <laughs> Catch me next next Saturday, uh, eight p.m. Yeah, yeah. No. There we go. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> what we did was we uh, we uh, partnered with a wonderful dog training organization here in the North Central Florida area, um, in order to get a group of completely novel dogs, as in. They were naive. They knew nothing. <laughs> they did not know how to sit or lay down Same. or do anything. Sounds like me. Same. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, fresh 
clean slates, um, and we took them and trained them to respond reliably to both verbal and gestural commands for a select series of um, commands that would be most commonly used. Um, and we essentially pitted the, the verbs versus the gestures and saw how well the animals did. And for the very, very majority of dogs, um, the gestures were either better or not at a significant difference from the spoken commands, which is really, really interesting and mm-hmm. might tell trainers and owners that they should teach their dogs sign language in the future <laughs> as opposed yeah. to training Fido to sit. Yeah. <laughs> and would this, obviously, because sign language does not transcend borders, but would this kind of training, would that be able to stretch beyond just American-born dogs? <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean... The thing, uh, so I like to liken different uh, sign languages because like Zoe alluded to, American Sign Language is not British Sign Language, which is not Australian Sign Language, which is not Spanish Sign Language. Mm -hmm. Um, However, the likeness between different sign languages, because they all generally uh, stem from a common French Sign Language ancestor, um, the similarity is kind of like uh, spoken Spanish to Portuguese, where if you put them in a room together, even though they speak technically different languages, they Mm. will be able to communicate. Um, So, yes, American Sign Language can very well translate. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Translate isn't the right word, obviously, when we're talking linguistically. (laughs) But, (laughs) um, uh, yes, speakers of American Sign Language and speakers of British Sign Language could very well enough use uh, similar cues mm-hmm. and cross over those barriers. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I wish like I knew, I like I only know the alphabet <laughs> in sign language. I don't even um, know that, so congrats. I, that's what I was gonna say. I'm like, I could, if you waited long enough, <laughs> I could have a conversation. If you Google <laughs> the Rochester method of American Sign Language, yeah. there was a very strong movement for a while during deaf history uh, for individuals to completely use finger spelling as a method of communication. So, really, yeah, maybe you were just meant for a different. Time. She was. Yeah, I was <laughs> you were born in the wrong generation. Uh, I knew it. What I knew it. You're just like giving me more evidence of what I already know. <laughs> but um, but I think that's so cool that you're doing this research. Is that something that you are hoping to implement into your own career? And oh, like, absolutely. Like, yeah, I I just um. I fostered so far. Well, I fostered two dogs, and I now own one of them because I'm a Bye failure. Oh. <laughs> um, but both no. of them. <laughs> but I'm a foster failure for sure. Um, I think so. that has a much more negative context, and what you did was not a bad. Thing. Uh, but both of both of my dogs are, are trained with gestural cues, oh. and they respond much more. Or the one puppy that I fostered for a while responded better to those gestural cues, and the dog that I have now. Uh, he, he, he responds much better to gestures than he does to spoken words. So we'll leave it at that. Um, yes, yes. That's cute. And do you hope to like have some kind of program like that when you are a vet? Like, or, or are you going to be working throughout like your life in that area? Yeah, I mean, I definitely hope to. So long term, um, as we mentioned, what feels like so long ago, I <laughs> am completing... Uh, joint doctor of veterinary medicine and master of public health. Obviously, when we think of uh, work in the public health field, individuals tend to jump towards the epidemiological sense of it. And specifically, we think of infectious and zoonotic diseases. Um, But of course, epidemiology is more than that. It's the spread of disease over time and space. And so if we think about how wellness is being harmed over time and space that does include health disparities um so what i really really hope to do is work in a sort of joint clinical and empirical sense where i can do great primary and preventive veterinary medicine at the same time investigating uh, health disparities and its influence in uh, veterinary outcomes and how we can better serve individuals with disabilities as well as individuals from lower socioeconomic statuses and traditionally uh, individuals who are traditionally barred from healthcare access to better influence the outcome of their animals and pets that they love so dearly. Do you find lots of people pursuing that joint path? Uh, So my 
cohort is 120 mm-hmm. strong, um, and we have the the cohort of joint DVM MPH students is two. Yeah, <laughs> like that so you, cannot be common. Yeah, yeah. So no one way. of two. Uh, yeah, I am one so of you, two students in the class of 2022. So you could either be valedictorian this. or salutatorian. Like, there is no, there is no failing here. I, 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 I wish they ranked us that way. <laughs> Who's doing the most? Great. Who is the most tired? I love that. You know what? Don't ever tell your parents there's only two, and then to them you will always be a success. Right, right. You um, can't lose. It's amazing. I um, see what you did there. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was so intentional. Um, so yeah, generally, in terms of uh, individuals seeking the same degree path that I'm seeking, not exceptionally common. Mm-hmm. But I do think, in general, that veterinarians are at a very, very pivotal uh, piece of the of the One Health and the public health spectrum, and mm-hmm. in just general terms of us needing, <laughs> requiring knowledge of a diversity of species, the disease yeah. uh, interactions between dogs and cats and mm, primates, including human and non-human primates, um, and how the environment and epigenetic influences kind of overlie and underlie all the different disease processes that go into that. Um, so I think in general, veterinarians have a pivotal role in public health. Are a lot of veterinarians really dedicatedly training themselves in a public health sphere. Not necessarily, Mm -hmm. um, but that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I was going to say, it seems like pursuing a DVM already comes with understanding disparity to a certain degree. Absolutely. But you're really doing the most here. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's what I do. I live tired. I have not been rested in years. He he came out of the womb just exhausted. Eye bags painted on. Yes, yes, I have baby pictures where my bags are already prodded. Are you serious? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I was born this way. It's it's genetic, baby. As an idol once said. (laughs) Baby, I was born with bags. <laughs> Lady Gaga. Yes, 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 yes. Um, this is way too late to be asking this, but we didn't get it in the first place. But um, why did you want to become a vet? Ah, good questions. So, for as long as I can remember, I have wanted to enter the health profession sphere. Mm-hmm. So it starts there. When I was like, I, I have vivid memories of a very <laughs> tiny Devon running around the kitchen table of my grandma it's still short enough to hit my head on the table that happened a lot um and tell my grandmother that i would grow up and fix her back unfortunately (laughs) her uh, back will not not by me it won't be fixed by me (laughs) Um, but but eventually i think uh i obviously grew up with animals in my household my entire life birds dogs um, mostly birds and dogs. <laughs> My mother was not a fan of the feline variety of, of pet. Um, but so I grew up with animals, and I think I definitely was one of those folks who had a special connection with animals more so than I did with people in general. Um, the anxieties and personal fears that I felt, I felt much more comfortable divulging um, in my bed to my dog, Princess, <laughs> um, than I did necessarily to my peers, um, my peers, advisors, doctors, etc. Um, and so I think at a certain point, especially when we got to the age where those animals I grew up with uh, began their own uh, degradation of, of wellness, um, I thought about what I could do to give back. And I thought about whose health mattered the most to me. And for me, it was it was the health of the individuals, the beings, the animals uh, that helped me so much throughout my prepubescence <laughs> and adolescence. Um, and even further later on, as I as I began to learn more about the field of health disparities and about the the, the restrictive factors that go into individuals seeking 
both human and veterinary healthcare, again, it's all about recognizing those patterns that we talked about earlier. Um, I right. recognize that my family, being from a low socioeconomic status, being from a diverse cultural background, we weren't as engaged in primary health care as we should be, um, both as people and for our animals. My pets rarely got the preventive care that they probably should have been getting on a regular basis. Um, and so that goes into my professional career in thinking about how can I now, with that lived experience, prevent that lived experience for individuals who are in my same situation as a child, period. <laughs> um, you know, and, and so that's, I think, how I've propelled myself, one, towards a career in veterinary medicine, two, towards a career in veterinary public health, primary and preventive medicine. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Little Devon could see you now. I need everyone to know. He is sitting in this chair in full scrubs with a stethoscope around his neck. I know. He came straight out of costume. which lab? <laughs> Large animal anatomy lab. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> He's yes. a full-on scientist. Yeah. I didn't mention it earlier, but I think I should. Because mm-hmm. Apeksha asked me when she... And she so bravely confronted me about my own personal engagement with diversity and inclusion. What are you doing, Devon? <laughs> um, I didn't mention, but I, but I really... It wasn't accusatory, I promise. <laughs> it's okay, it's it was okay. meant to be a conversation. <laughs> and now we're conversing. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. You need those emancipatory inquiries in order to spark brave conversations. I feel like he's going to have a horde of dogs with like one <laughs> command, like, get a <laughs> And it's a gesture. It's you just a point. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to be dragged out of my bed by, like, a horde of dogs. Great. I'm ready for it'll it. It'll be lovely. Yeah, it'll be a fun time. <laughs> um, one thing I didn't mention, uh, very recently, maybe that's why it's, it's still fresh on my mind. It's an ongoing <laughs> thing. Um, I've been appointed to be one of the clinical coordinators at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine for the PAWS clinic, P-A-W-S, stands for Pets Are Wonderful Support. A uh, <laughs> bit of a cheesy <laughs> title there. Um, but the point of the PAWS clinic is that we offer free or very, very low-cost veterinary care to individuals from low socioeconomic statuses and mm-hmm. or individuals um, who have recorded disabilities. So... This is literally like what I want to do with yeah. the rest of my life, um, and I'm I'm so excited uh, to be able to engage with the exact type of people that need the this engagement the most, both yeah. for their animals to physically financially be able to access the care, and for these individuals to be able to engage on their own time in conversations regarding health that is obviously directed regarding their animals, but I can only imagine and hope (laughs) uh, would make an impact on their own human health, their own human wellness. And again, that social capital. If, if mom learns more about Fluffy's healthcare, maybe that will influence mom's healthcare and maybe that will influence mom's daughter's healthcare and mom's daughter's daughter's healthcare and so on and so forth. So to be in this sort of pivotal space just as a first year veterinary student is so exciting Mm -hmm. and passion feeding to me. Um, And so I'm really looking forward to getting more involved in that. Uh, And so if you are someone who is having an issue of any sort accessing veterinary health care, I can actually tell you to reach out to me. (laughs) (laughs) Who can they reach out to you to? Ah, so. (laughs) The plug plug begins. Um, No, I don't know. Uh, You can find me on most social media at (laughs) devboy. That is devboy, D-E-V-B-O three eyes. Zoe is furring her brows in such frustration and embarrassment. Um, As I should be, probably. It's just, you hear everything that you say, and you're like, wow, the handle's got to be just like Devon Mims, you know, like professional, and you're like, so dev boy! (laughs) With three eyes, thank you. (laughs) Don't get it twisted. three wise. Eyes. eyes. No, it's Mimi, it's not even like... Right, right. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It's the most horrible it can be. Uh, D E V B O I I I three. Um, <laughs> I'm also on Facebook. Do um, you have an email, Devon? Yes. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I can be most easily emailed. 
<laughs> at dmims at ufl.edu. That is D-M-I-M-S, Mims like the rapper, at <laughs> ufl.edu. Dang, the way you plug yourself. Anyway, so <laughs> to kind of finish off, <laughs> since we've been going through, we've learned about you have a million different interests, but you've kind of put them all together in a way right. that is cohesive and right. makes sense. Isn't that weird? Yeah, you, you really did out. that. So <laughs> do you have any advice for people who are having a hard time figuring out how to merge interests that seem unrelated? Uh, first of all, be gentle uh, to yourself, to your passions. Do not think that because you have these diverse interests that you are <laughs> not normal. <laughs> or again, that you can't combine them into something that you are wholeheartedly passionate about. Because when I first enrolled at the University of Florida and I was doing my zoology degree and my disabilities degree, I had no idea how those were going to work together. And I kept working towards them. And I found, I actually, I, I didn't find uh, the way that they would work together. It fell into my lap. And that is most often how these things work in the most unexpected untimely <laughs> um, <laughs> ways. So be gentle in your expectations. Um, that's a big one. That's like, Yeah, that that's... was kind of all-encompassing. <laughs> <laughs> You're really asking the big questions here. <laughs> we are, in fact, beyond the talk. So. Oh, <laughs> Look at her tying in that there. title. Yeah. Come in full circle. <laughs> yeah, so I'll just say that then. Be gentle. Yeah. Uh, be gentle. Be motivated. Keep moving forward. Seek advice when necessary whether it be me or Zoe or Peksha or mm. your mom or, <laughs> or, or anyone. Um, yeah. Be yeah. gentle. Find a hearing ear and an open heart and helping hands. And with that, <laughs> we are, let him keep going. I know. I'm like, what else is he going to come up with? God and, only knows. And a clear mind. And a clear mind. And open stomach. eyes. And a, full <laughs> yeah. and a clear skin. Ah. Clear my skin, raise my crops, or whatever. whatever. <laughs> yes. All right. Anyway, well, thank you so much to Devon for being our special guest today. Thank you so much for having me, and let me ramble. We hope it wasn't the worst experience in the world. No, 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 not yeah. at all. This was no. a great time. I had fun. And you educated the masses <laughs> with that uh, spicy tea. That spicy as tea. As, the hot tea. As, uh, All right. So beyond thanking Devon, I have other people to thank. Okay. So thank you to the J School for always letting us use this space. We abuse it every time, and I am so very sorry. Thank you to all of our listeners for supporting this. <laughs> for whatever reason. Thank you. Um, if you are interested in listening to any more episodes of Beyond the Talk, we have a new one every single Monday, which is a lot of work. So please. For the love of God, listen. Um, if you want to follow TEDxUF on social media for any updates, we're on every single social media, excessively so. Um, if you click going on our TEDxUF 2019 conference event page, you'll get all the deets about our upcoming conference on April 6th. We have released both theme and speakers, so if you don't know about that yet, you probably haven't RSVP'd to the event page, and you should get on it. Um, and with that, any more announcements? Um, no. Lit, boy. All right. And with that, thank you for listening and have a fab day.